We have devoted our Sunday evening services for a few weeks to consideration of passages that are suggested by one of America's best-loved hymns, Amazing Grace. I've reminded you that uh, this is the 250th anniversary of the writing of the words of the hymn, though it was not published until 1779. It was written in 1772, and it was actually first preached as a part of a New Year's Day sermon, January 1st in 1773. Tonight, our consideration of Scripture is prompted by the verse, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my faith secures. He will my strength and portion be as long as life endures. These thoughts so long ago penned by uh, Isaac Newton would be uh, amazingly uh, similar to what we find in the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Let's stand together as we reverence the reading of God's Word tonight. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. And may God bless the reading of his word tonight is my prayer. You may be seated. We're not sure what prompted the words in the writing of this great hymn, whether he was thinking about our text tonight or not. But I do see remarkable similarities. And as I thought about uh, the passage that uh, out of many that could have potentially been suggested by the words of our text, it was this one that uh, I felt directed to and settled in on uh, lamentations. There might have been other passages that uh, would have correctly identified the fact that God is good, that God is our portion, and all of these things are true. But to set them against the dark background of what was happening in Jeremiah's life and what prompted the writing of Lamentations, especially our text tonight. Now that is something to see. Jeremiah had given prophecy to a nation in a state of decline, ruin, death. It was once an almost unimaginable turn of events to imagine a nation that was being overrun by a foreign power, its cities left in ruins by the attack, its people either killed or taken back to work as forced labor in the occupying nation. I said this was once almost unimaginable because, unfortunately, this is a scene that we're seeing play out in our world. I was reading uh, just this afternoon some of the things that happened and are still happening in Ukraine. Invaded by foreign power, cities left in ruin, its people deported, forced labor. It's happening. It's happened again and again throughout history. It happened in ancient Jerusalem. But this was not just some happenstance, not just something that happened because God took 100% of the credit for seeing to it that this happened. 
This was a part of his judgment upon the nation. It was inevitable. And he sent Jeremiah to deliver that message. Uh, as Jeremiah is writing this, uh, the, uh, de- the defamation, the destruction that he had promised all those years had come to pass and been completed. Uh, Bab- Jerusalem had fallen. Babylon had overthrown it. The people had been deported. Jeremiah had fled with some of the people who decided to flee to Egypt, though God told him not to. It's an interesting thing, God said. What you need to do is save your life. And the way you need to save your life and the life of your future uh, descendants is by surrendering to Babylon. Uh, but uh, people just couldn't buy into that. And so a whole bunch of them went down to Egypt. And apparently Jeremiah had gone with them to continue to prophesy to them, to tell them, this is not going to work. And, it, of course, it didn't work. Jeremiah, by this writing, had no hope for the resurrection of his nation in his lifetime. Wasn't going to happen. He wasn't going home again. He knew it. The only hope Jeremiah had was in God. But Jeremiah was not hopeless. He still had hope. But it would behoove us tonight as we consider this passage. The Lord has promised good to me. He will my portion be. It's good for us to consider this passage within this overwhelming context of the depths. Because while we might just have to wonder what prompted the hymn writer to write as he did. We don't have to wonder why Jeremiah wrote as he wrote. He spelled it out for us. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 20 then, we begin seeing the depths. He said, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. A lot of times a trip down memory lane is pleasant. I've heard that reminiscing is one of the favorite tasks of old people, and now I'm living that out. (laughs) Talking about, man, I understand. A lot of times that walk down memory lane was pleasant, but not for Jeremiah. In fact, he's going to spend some time in this chapter describing how he was hunted down and thrown down into a pit, which was either a cistern or a well, and left to die. It wasn't an isolated incident. Jeremiah lived and served in the midst of traumatic times. And though he was a prophet of God, many of the things he prophesied of would fall on him as well. It's a simple principle. If God is going to judge a nation, and I'm a part of that nation, then God's judgment is going to fall on me. Classic example is in the case of Ahab and the wicked king, uh, or his wicked queen Jezebel, and the faithful prophet Elijah, who told him that there'd be neither rain nor dew for three years except by his word. Elijah ends up by drying, dying brook, eating birds, food, and widow's fare. Uh, fed by crows. Think about that one for a minute. Meanwhile, if anybody had food in Israel, it was Ahab and Jezebel, probably the people who were most responsible for the evil and wicked things that were happening in the nation were least affected by the judgment of God, the severity of it all seemed to fall on Elijah. But you know, (laughs) that table would turn, that tide would turn, and eventually God's judgment 
would fall crushingly on Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah, of course, got to go to heaven without dying. How cool is that? Well, oftentimes then God's prophets would fall victim to the very judgment that they were promising on his people. In Jeremiah's case, the cause of the trauma that he would endure was his faithfulness to God. His enemies deserved mentioning. And by the way, he does pray that God would repay them for what they did to them, destroy them from under the heavens, verse 66. But uh, in the end, Jeremiah knew that what was happening to him was because of the judgment of God. And that's what he said, verse 37. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? (laughs) What an interesting passage that is. Is it not from the mouth of the Lord that both woe and well-being comes? This means that God can be both our greatest threat and our only refuge all at the same time. That's the way it is. Jeremiah had not escaped from these problems as he's writing these words and burdening himself then by endlessly reliving the past. Sometimes we get caught in that. that As we go back and we begin to think, it's easy sometimes to bring up those burned in our brain memories of the terrible things that somebody said, the awful things that somebody did, how terribly we were mistreated. And it's easy to go back over those and fire up those feelings of how someday we might be able to get even. It's easy to do that. It's easy to remember those harsh and horrible things. But you know, if you've tried that very often, that it really doesn't do a whole lot of good. It just stirs up a lot of emotions and a lot of feelings that we're better off not feeling. This was not what Jeremiah was doing. He wasn't just trying to relive the past. He was Still in the past. It was still happening. He was still suffering. He was still in peril for his life. The past was troubling. The future didn't look any better. I don't want to belabor that point tonight, but it would help us to understand then what all Jeremiah says God was doing to him, what all had happened to him. Verse 1, Lamentations 3, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and again throughout the day. It's a time of God's judgment upon Israel. And there was Jeremiah doing what God told him to do. Preaching what God told him to preach. When God told him to write it all down, you know what Jeremiah did? He wrote it all down. When God told him to deliver it to the king, you know what Jeremiah did? He delivered it to the king. You know what the king did? Cut it up and threw it in the fire. You know what God did? (laughs) He said, write it again. Jeremiah wrote it again. Thank God he did. That's why we had the book of Jeremiah. It's all of this, you see. He was doing exactly what God told him to say, doing what God told him to do. And yet God had led him into the land of darkness and not light. He saw affliction and wrath. The hand of God then was turned against him so it was not a hand of friendship or favor but a hand of chastisement. 
though he was faithful. Verse 4, he has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He's besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Do we think Jeremiah was being a little too dramatic? Do we think he was embellishing things? I don't. The situation that he was in was showing on Jeremiah's face. It had aged him. Have you seen somebody go through a time of prolonged stress where it seemed like they aged five years in a year? It happens. Jeremiah had aged. The stress of his experiences had aged him on the outside. His bones and joints felt the pain. It was aged on the inside. He was surrounded with bitterness and woe and darkness, and he couldn't get out. It was like a chain wrapped around his heart, a burden to carry. Verse 8, even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He's made me desolate. No matter how earnestly Jeremiah prayed, it seemed that God didn't listen. What was he praying for? Deliverance. But there was no deliverance from this. God's judgment was set and settled. Jeremiah felt like God had blocked his path of escape. So that there was no way. Hewn stones, he called it. You know what hewn stones are? Well prepared. God didn't just pick up a bunch of rocks and throw them out. Hewn stones. He had prepared them beforehand. He would laid in wait, God had, like a bear and a lion. And uh, both of which ambushed their prey. And so he felt ambushed. It gets worse. Verse 12, he's been his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He's caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. That's the back. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. This is especially difficult for the prophet. The very messages that God sent him to deliver seem to affect only him. They laughed at the way he cried through his preaching. How he cried through his sermons. And the only one who felt that burden apparently was him. So they ridiculed him. He goes on, verse 15, he's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drink wormwood. He's broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You've moved my soul far from peace. I've forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. If we recognize gall, we should. We even today speak of something that galls us. It's a, just a harsh thing that someone does, a bitter thing. And both gall and wormwood speak of just that, bitterness. From the mouth of God, by the word of God, Jeremiah says, Come both woe and well-being. Jeremiah loved God, served God, followed God, obeyed God, and spoke God's truth. But still he says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. I followed God, but God led me into darkness. 
Obeying God doesn't always lead to blessing and favor and ease. No wonder Jeremiah starts out talking about all the, the depths my soul remembers and sinks within me. The past had been bad. The future looked bad. My soul sinks. No way out. Hemmed in by God's judgment. The Lord has promised good to me. He will my strength and portion be. Well, I'm glad that Jeremiah didn't just talk about the depths. Because he also talks about the delights. The delights. I didn't have to exaggerate. I didn't have to embellish. I don't do that. I didn't have to make this stuff up. All I had to do was read what Jeremiah wrote under his inspiration. And we feel the crushing weight of a man who had lost everything. His nation. His family. His friends. His reputation. Whatever wealth he had, whatever property he owned, God even forbid him to marry, which is unusual because uh, celibacy was unheard of among the Jews of their day, and they considered it to be God's first commandment to humanity, is to be fruitful and multiply. It was only in the New Testament that celibacy was said to be okay, it's all right if a man decides not to marry. And so Jeremiah was made an object lesson, young man though he was. You'll see that in chapter 16 if you want to go read it. Forbidden the love of a wife, forbidden to have children. Here he sits. But he says in verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. He needed more than remembering. He needed recollection. He needed something, and though they are similar, there's a recollection brings in another ingredient, reflection. So while it's easy for us to remember bitter and even galling experiences, especially when they're still going on and they surround us on every hand and we're still going from one to the other to the other, it takes effort to go back and remember how good God has been to us. In the midst of a trial, in the midst of catastrophic trials, we can still remember the goodness of God, His mercy to us. We realize that though we follow God and we, He's led us into this, I, I didn't miss Him somewhere. No, I'm, I'm right on target. I'm exactly where God intends for me to be. 
this has come upon me. I don't see any way out of it. There's, there's not some future moment I'm going to wake up and all this is going to be gone. No, no. And so I want in that moment to reflect. The first thought that he expresses for us is that every day brings a fresh, fresh supply of the mercy and compassion of God. He reminds us that God is faithful. God is greatly faithful. Great is your faithfulness. God is greatly faithful. Did I mention God is greatly faithful? Let me say that again in case you missed it. God isn't just faithful. God is greatly faithful. That's uh, what he brings to us. And so he brings up the mercy and the faithfulness of God. Which brings us to our text for tonight. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. My portion. My inheritance, my blessing, my fullness is the Lord. These are good things not chosen at random. My portion, my inheritance, my blessing, my fullness. It is the Lord then who is good to those who wait for him and seek him. And since then, God is good to us. Since that is true, it is also good that one should hope and wait quietly for God's salvation and deliverance. It's that quietly part that I struggle with. I don't know if anybody else in the building or anyone else watching from home ever struggles with this, but there's a time or two in my life, I have to admit, that I've sat down and spent my time in God's time telling him all about what's going on. Because obviously he doesn't know. And so I need to tell him. It is good that we should wait quietly for God's salvation and deliverance. From time to time we need to perhaps learn from Jeremiah. Though he had indeed spent some time talking about what was going on and what God had done. He, he puts all of that time in himself. He does. But as he begins to think about the delights. All of a sudden he says, you know, maybe I just need to be quiet. Maybe I just need to hush. Maybe I just need to stop all this and just wait because God is good to those who wait for Him. And God is good to the soul who seeks Him. And since that is true, then I can wait godly for God's salvation and deliverance. Since it is true then that God is good and and that it is good for us to wait on him. It, it, he could even look at something that anybody would consider to be a terrible thing. The yoke of servitude or bondage. He'll talk about this one a lot. I didn't put it in our notes. I'm not going to read it to you tonight. But he talks about how that a person would bear the yoke in his youth. Uh, he'd never know freedom. All he'd ever know was servitude. 
And even in that small thing, we might say, Jeremiah could see a blessing. They'd never known freedom. All they'd ever known was that yoke of bondage and servitude. And so even in that, they'd learned, they'd learned how that if they're pushed down and put down, they could bear that quietly. And, and if they would be hit upon their cheek, they could turn the, the cheek to their master who might smite them. And they could continue on to serve and be faithful and learn how to live in service. And it was not all bad. He could look at a, a terrible thing, a tragic thing. And yet even that, see God's goodness. Compared to what happened to everybody else in Israel, those who stayed alive and were serving in Babylon were still alive and serving. They'd learn. They'd marry. They'd have children. And their children would go back to the land. And God would bless them. So we ask in verse 39, why should a living man complain? <laughs> what a great concept. Why should a living man complain? Hey, I'm still alive. What about fussing about? Why should I complain? A man for the punishment of his sin, should I complain? Well, I have to say tonight, I, I never met a, a case of punishment that I really liked. Uh, my parents were firm believers in corporal punishment. Uh, what that means is they spanked me. Now, they did not do any permanent damage to me, although if you would have heard me howl when they were spanking me, you might have thought that I was uh, being horribly, horribly abused. It's not the case. Uh, they believed in it. I, I never got a spanking that I didn't deserve. Although there was several times that it was really my sister or my brother's fault, but I got the spanking. Anybody with me tonight? Okay. They should have got one too. I deserve what I got. They should have. Okay. In a perfect world, it would all worked out that way. It didn't. Do we complain really? Do we have anything to complain about? If God punishes us for our sins, can't we stop and think about all the times that God didn't punish us? When we didn't experience that chastening, just like with our parents, if we got a lot of spankings, we deserved, but we deserved a lot more than we got. We got away with a lot of stuff. We don't get away with it with God, but sometimes God is merciful and gracious to us. So should we complain for the punishment of our sins? Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord and let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. And so we see that his once sinking soul has now become a singing soul as he worships and raises his heart and hands to God in heaven. I guess Baptists will always be a little bit challenged about what to do with our hands when we worship. But at the very least, we can look in this passage and say, lifting both our hearts and our hands to God in praise is okay. It's right here in the scripture. 
So that once sinking soul has now become a worshiping heart, singing praise and giving praise and thanksgiving to Almighty God. We reflect on the fact that we're still in the land of the living. Uh, Why should a living man complain? He will my strength and portion be as long as life endures. Why should a living man complain? Because God is good. God is my portion. I might not have anything else left, but I've still got God. God is good. God is my portion. And it will be as long as we're still alive. There's time then to repent. There's time to turn back from God, turn back to God and turn away from our sins. And, and that's what he brings us to. Without repentance, you see, our rejoicing is a sham. It's a hollow, empty shell, a facade that may look good and make us feel good. But our true rejoicing comes when we repent of our sins, when we turn to God and we experience His mercy and compassion. And we go away saying, not just that God is faithful, but that God is greatly faithful. Walking through this passage then with Jeremiah sets this whole concept of God has promised good to me. His word, my faith secures. He will my strength and portion be as long as life endures. And though this is perhaps an extreme setting, it is still a setting demonstrating that though we may never have to sink to the depths that Jeremiah sank to, God's promises are still sure. God's goodness is still there. And when we have that depth of experience, that time maybe when we're suffering, that time when things don't work out, still we can raise our hearts and our hands to heaven and say, God, you've been good to me. Thank you for your goodness. So he centers our thinking then around several realities that I'll close out with tonight. First, God's mercy was still operational. And he knew that because he was still alive when a lot of people wasn't. There's not a person in this building that's old enough to understand how life is and how fragile it is. It hadn't gone very much past your teenage years And as you go along, you'll become more and more aware of this. You're still alive. And a lot of the people who are your age that you started out life with are not. A lot of people you know, a lot of friends, a lot of people your age are not still alive. God's mercy then was still operational because he was still alive. God's faithfulness was still dependable. Greatly faithful. God was still his portion. And most of all, God was still good. And he knew it. And he knew that God would be good. You see, God is always good, but God would be good. God would do good to those who seek him and to those who wait for him. The Lord has promised good to me. Of course, the greatest good that God promises us is our salvation. 
this comes to us because we hear the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came into this world. That's what we celebrate this season, Advent. Jesus came into the world. As John put it so eloquently, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what we celebrate, that Jesus came into the world. But not just that he came. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul said, of whom I am chief. That means that God can save you as well. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to pay the price for your sins, was buried, rose again, so that you can have that assurance of eternal life we talked about this morning. If you'll only trust in him. Have you asked Jesus to save you? Have you believed on him for the salvation of your soul? No more important decision that can ever be made than this one. To receive Jesus Christ. When you do that, I'm not going to tell you tonight that everything from that moment on is going to be rosy. All over this building tonight. And many, many people could give testimony to a lot of trials a lot of difficulties that God has brought them through. Yes, that even in those trials, we understand God is still good. God is good, and he has promised good to us. That can be your testimony tonight if you'd only receive Jesus as your Savior. Let's stand together, please.